allow me to engage in a little bit of obvious fiction to make a point. How are we doing in China? the Almighty asked. One of the twenty-four elders surrounding the throne of God replied, Well, my lord, with the now being okay for families there to have two children rather than one, we're a little worried about people contributing enough money to be able to publish enough Bibles in the Chinese language in order to keep up with the birth rate. Sure. Well, what about the satellite program to send the gospel into Uzbekistan? A second elder around the throne cleared his throat and responded, <clears throat> uh, Yes, Lord, there may be a little delay on that project. Uh, the uh, rocket carrying the satellite exploded in the sky after takeoff, causing a little bit of a setback. Hmm. The Lord turned his head and set his gaze to the far end where the elders were seated. How about heart stirrings? Where are we at with people feeling the call to be missionaries? Uh, heart stirrings are down 17%, Lord, the elder answered. It appears we're having a hard time competing with Instagram and other social media. Right, right, the Almighty said quietly, and then paused contemplatively. Suddenly, the heavens shook, and thunder and lightning burst forth from the throne as the creator of the universe boomed. We are never going to get my son back to that planet at this rate. How absolutely absurd to think that such a conversation could ever take place in the throne room of the Almighty Lord of the universe. Equally absurd, though, is to think that in order to accomplish his purposes, God could ever be dependent upon the intellect, resources, or actions of the human beings that he created from the dust. When God tells us in his word that something is going to happen unconditionally, it's going to happen, and it will happen precisely at the appointed time. The next thing Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse is one of those things that will happen with or without us. We're on verse 14 of the book of Matthew, chapter 24. It goes like this, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed throughout all of the world as a testimony to all peoples, and then the end will come. Mark 13.10 puts it like this, And the gospel must first be publicly proclaimed to all peoples. This statement regarding preaching the gospel to, quote, all the world, unquote, almost seems a little out of place in the context of what we've read so far. On the surface, it makes it sound like a conditional statement that Jesus isn't coming back until you get out there and spread the gospel. However, this statement was made here because it directly relates to what Jesus was just saying about his return and his followers' persecution. Here's Mark's version of the statement again, along with the verses preceding and following it. But take heed for yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you will be beaten, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you will speak, neither do you premeditate it. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Holy Spirit. That's Mark chapter 13, verses 9 to 11. 
The statement about proclaiming the gospel to all nations appears to be a part of the larger statement regarding bearing witness during persecution. With that in mind, in context, it looks like at least one way the gospel will be spread before, quote, the end, unquote, comes, is through the testimony of those followers of Jesus that are brought to trial and stand before government officials. At the time in which that occurs, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will speak through his followers. The main message the Holy Spirit will proclaim, considering the surrounding scripture, is that of the gospel of the kingdom. Mark's account of this statement in the Olivet Discourse leaves out the part about the gospels being spread to the whole world, as well as the part about the end occurring after it is accomplished. If the Matthew version of this part of the Olivet Discourse is to be taken close to literally, the, quote, whole world, unquote, hearing the gospel indicates that there will be other avenues for the gospel to be spread. So there will be more ways of spreading the gospel than only the court of law or the testimony given before governors and kings. The original Greek word used to express, quote, the whole world, unquote, originally only meant the Greek or Hellenized world, or later, the world under Roman authority. The idea is that what's involved is the known or inhabited world. By inference, it means the entire inhabited world. So we're not just talking about a localized phenomenon in and around Jerusalem or Israel or even the Middle East. We're talking about the entire inhabited world. Well, the statement recorded in Matthew, and then the end shall come, clearly ties the Olivet Discourse to the end of the age. Not, as preterists would have us believe, only the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. As pointed out earlier, this is not the first place where we find documentation of Jesus speaking of the spreading of the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 10 contains an account of Jesus sending his disciples out to spread the gospel in Israel. However, in contrast, Jesus is now telling the same disciples that the gospel will be spread not only to Israel and Jews, but beyond, to the entire world and all people. There are two important differences between Jesus' statement on the Mount of Olives about the spreading of the gospel compared to what happened in Matthew chapter 10. First, when Jesus speaks of the gospel being spread in the Olivet Discourse, it is not a command to the disciples to do anything. Jesus is telling his disciples that it will be spread. The statement is silent in this passage as to how spreading the gospel to the entire world will occur. Mark only hints that the spreading of the gospel will come about as a result of persecution. The second, and perhaps most important difference, is that in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus specifically instructed the disciples to go only to, quote, the house of Israel, unquote, and not to the nations of the Gentiles, which are the whole world and all people. Here's Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans enter you not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, during the Olivet Discourse, 
Jesus tells the disciples that his gospel, the gospel of the kingdom that he's been teaching about for the last few years, must now be spread to the entire world and not just the nation of Israel. Earlier the same day that Jesus delivered this message, he hinted to the religious leaders of Israel about this change. I'm going to read to you now from Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stones them which are sent into you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me again until you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. The startling announcement made here by Jesus is that God would now be going outside of the house of Israel for chosen people. He's far from being done with Israel. But this is the announcement of the beginning of a part of God's plan that all of us Gentiles can be extremely grateful for. This is the same thing that the Apostle Paul was speaking of in the following passage when Paul refers to the mystery, which was made known to him and was delivered through him. Paul wrote of this, quote, mystery, unquote, to the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae. This is Paul to the Ephesians. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power, to me, who is less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. That's from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 2 to 9. This is now Paul telling roughly the same thing to the Colossians. Wherefore, I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, that is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 25 to 28. Simply put, the mystery is that Gentiles, or non-Jews, would have the ability to become a chosen and special people who can spend eternity with Jesus in his kingdom. The gospel, or good news, that would be spread to all nations is that the blood that Jesus would spill, from Paul's perspective, did spill, 
was an atonement for the sins of all mankind, if they will accept it. The mystery does not replace Jews with Gentiles, nor does it take away from the special relationship Jews have with God, the role they played in God's plan or will play in the future. That relationship will always be unique and very special. Scripture indicates that the mystery is limited in time and will one day come to an end. It began at the cross of Jesus and will conclude at some time in the future when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on this earth. God has predestined that an exact number of Gentiles will be called to himself. That's what's meant in the following passage when the Apostle Paul writes of the fullness of the Gentiles. This is Paul to the Romans. For I would not, brethren, have you be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That's from the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 25. Paul wrote a great deal about this mystery in Romans, chapter 11. These are Jesus' words from the book of Luke, chapter 21, verse 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. These passages speak about a future time when Israel will turn back to God and recognize that Jesus was and is their Messiah. This will occur after all of the Gentile people of the world who were predestined to be called by God from among all the nations have been set apart for himself. Setting aside any debate of free will versus predestination, only God knows who all of those people are. The last Gentile to be called is only known to God. Once that number has been realized, the fullness of the Gentiles will have, quote, come in, unquote. That will only take place, as Jesus has said, after this gospel has been preached to all nations. It's then that the end shall come. This end of the mystery and the end of the age is clearly spoken of in the book of Revelation. There it says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swore by him that lives for ever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that are in it, and the earth, and the things that are in it, and the sea, and the things that are in it, that there should be no time longer. But in the last days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. That comes from Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. The mystery is fulfilled or finished, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The seventh angel mentioned in the passage I just read sounds his trumpet, and the fulfillment of this mystery of God is announced. The next thing that happens in sequence in the book of Revelation is the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus on this earth. This is Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The times of the Gentiles 
and the mystery of the gospel that Paul wrote of are inseparable. It's an important and fascinating topic. So this was something new to the disciples. The fellows had never heard this one before. Whereas before they were to take the gospel personally only to the house of Israel, now they were learning that before the end of the age would come, not the destruction of the temple, but the end would come, that the gospel would be taken to the entire world. But what was this gospel exactly? If someone were to ask you to explain the gospel to him or her, what would you say? Gospel, of course, literally means good news. Having even the simplest understanding of the gospel has to play a part in anyone coming to salvation. What's your understanding of it? Knowing the gospel is also critical to a Christian's ability to spread the gospel, as we, his modern disciples, have been instructed by Jesus to do. The Apostle Paul summed up the basic components of what the gospel is, as most understand it today, in his first letter to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. This is that letter to the Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which you also are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how Christ that died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. If I had to put into one sentence what my understanding of the gospel is, and I hope that never happens because it's such a big topic, it would be based on the scripture that I just read to you. It would be something like this. Jesus, God in human form, through his sacrificial actions, provided anyone who will make Jesus his or her Lord a way to be eternally in right standing with God. This is truly good news, to say the least. Yet none of what Paul was talking about in his letter to the church in Corinth had occurred at the time Jesus was speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives about the gospel of the kingdom. What would the disciples who sat with Jesus on the Mount of Olives had understood Jesus to mean when he referred to this gospel of the kingdom being preached? Likewise, what was the gospel they were teaching to the nation of Israel after Jesus instructed them to do so in Matthew chapter 10? Certainly, the disciples might have thought about the gospel a little differently since they were listening to someone who had not yet been killed on a Roman cross, nor had risen in a glorified body or conquered hell and death. They did not have the advantage of the historical documentation as we do in the form of our Bible as our guide. These disciples had not yet received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, nor the many faith-building experiences they would have in the coming years. The Apostle John had not yet written 1 John 1.9, which says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul had not yet written Romans 10.9, that says, that if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The book of Matthew records that Jesus himself spread the gospel of the kingdom. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, 
and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. What Jesus was talking about as he spread the gospel of the kingdom is a fascinating study. It's far outside the scope of this podcast. However, since Jesus refers to the gospel of the kingdom in the Olivet Discourse, we need to have a basic understanding of it. The scripture passage that contains perhaps the most concise information on the topic is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. There, Jesus explains to a man named Nicodemus that one must be born again to access the kingdom of God. Jesus relays that he himself is the Son of God, and that belief and trust in him is key to salvation. You can read about all that in John chapter 3, verses 3 to 16. In that passage, Jesus cryptically hints that he will be crucified when he says that the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up, meaning on a cross. That's in John 3, 14. Some also believe that being lifted up may be referring to the resurrection. He also points out that those who do not believe in him are condemned. That's in John 3, 18. Certainly, these are all important components of the gospel before and after the cross. The Jews of Jesus' day were expecting a Messiah to come and establish a kingdom on this earth. Under the rule of the Messiah they had in mind, the Jews expected a golden era spoken of by the Old Testament prophets. However, Jesus came and spoke of a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, or referred to elsewhere as the kingdom of God. The good news was, and is, that one can enter the kingdom of heaven at any time without the overthrow of any government by being born again. Not a physical rebirth, but a spiritual one. This spiritual rebirth comes about through belief in who Jesus is and what he says. This understanding of the gospel of the kingdom takes nothing away from the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's only because of his death and resurrection that salvation was made possible. The book of Mark starts off with the words, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Whereas some have attempted to parse out differences between the gospel of Jesus Christ from the gospel of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, I think that the two are utterly dependent on each other and inseparable. You can't have one without the other. As, quote, first citizen, unquote, of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is our example of what all citizens of that kingdom should strive to be like. As the one who spoke authoritatively on the kingdom of heaven, having been the only one who actually descended from there, he is the prophet of the kingdom of heaven, testifying as to what he personally knows of that kingdom. As the one who ultimately atoned for our sins, making it possible for mere humans to become spiritually reborn and enter the kingdom of heaven, he is the high priest of the kingdom of heaven. And because all authority in both heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Finally, this gospel of the kingdom includes the good news of his bringing the kingdom of heaven to this earth. That is the essence of what the Olivet Discourse is about. 
the good news of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. The Old Testament prophecies are rich with descriptions of the future golden era when Jesus will establish his millennial kingdom on this earth. That's what made the news so good to first century Jews. Most first century Jews knew about the Old Testament prophecies, which talked about the future messianic kingdom. Then there he was, Jesus, the Messiah in person, to tell them how simple it was for them to have a part in that kingdom. Likewise, his gospel still proclaims that simple message to us today. Well-intended Christians have misused the prophecy Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives pertaining to the gospel being spread to all nations in an attempt to support many different gospel-spreading ministries. Some claim that Jesus, quote, can't return, unquote, until we get out there and do our job. The job? Spreading the gospel to all nations. This has taken many forms. I've personally witnessed this on a number of occasions. For example, quote, We need to give money so we can install satellite dishes in China so we can preach the gospel there. It's only when the gospel has reached all the world that it will be possible for Jesus to return, unquote. Or how about, quote, We need to give money to a prison ministry so the people in jail can hear the gospel. It's only after every inmate has had the opportunity to hear the gospel that Jesus may return, unquote. Or, quote, We need to give money to print Bibles in every known language. Once we have done so, then Jesus may return, unquote. Or, quote, Have you ever considered the mission field? You know the gospel must be preached in every corner of the earth before Jesus can return, unquote. As well intended as these people may be, and their hearts may be in the right place, wanting to spread the gospel out of a correct motivation of pure Christ-like love. There are many problems with the logic of those that say Jesus can't return until the gospel has been preached to the entire world. Is Jesus stating every geographical inch of the world must have first had a missionary trod upon it prior to his return? Or do we only need to merely set foot in every nation? Do we go by the geopolitical maps of the first century or the 21st century? Once this has occurred, if it hasn't already, do we need to start over preaching the gospel, since although the places are the same, the inhabitants of the earth are constantly changing? Is Jesus saying that every human being in the world must have been presented with the gospel prior to his return? Out of fairness, do babies need to grow up to an age where they can understand the gospel when they hear it? What do we do in a world where there's a new person born every eight seconds? Are we going to need to come up with a system where we have a missionary present for the birth of every child, making it possible for Jesus to return? What about countries that have had the gospel preached, but long ago forgot that it ever occurred? Does that count? Indeed, we are called to spread the gospel. But believing that God is depending on mankind to come up with a system to get out his good news before he can return is as absurd as the made-up story I started this podcast with. The fullness of the Gentiles will occur, and the mystery will be complete at a precise, predetermined time by God. God uses humans as tools to bring about His will, and has used many faithful missionaries over the centuries to spread His gospel. However, the fullness of the Gentiles and the completion of the mystery will not depend on the efforts of mankind. Regardless of this, 
Christians are still commanded to do their part in spreading the gospel. Don't get me wrong. Here's something to think about. According to the Apostle Paul, the gospel has already been spread to, quote, every creature, unquote, on the earth. This comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come to you, as it is in all the world, and bring forth fruit, as it does also in you, since the day you heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Paul goes on to say a short time later in verse 23, If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Please note the past tense, it was preached to every creature. Well, no one knows for sure how many people lived on the planet in the first century A.D., or how the population was dispersed. Estimates by the 4th century A.D. in the Roman Empire alone runs between 50 and 60 million people. It's likely in the passages of Paul's letters that I just read to you that he was not writing about personal missionary contact being made with every person on the planet. Far more likely was that he was writing about something supernatural. The following passage from the book of Romans, again written by Paul, may give us a clue. This is from Romans chapter 1, verses 15 to 21. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are of Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Whether people acknowledge it or not, all have had the reality of God revealed to them according to the scripture. This being the case, they will either accept it and seek him, or reject it and harden their hearts against him. Rejecting God, they become vain in their imaginations. If you seek the real God, Scripture tells us that you will find him. Whether what Paul wrote of qualifies for satisfying what Jesus spoke about on the Mount of Olives or not, in the book of Revelation, we see the eternal gospel being miraculously preached throughout the entire world prior to the end coming. Here's what the Apostle John witnessed in his vision as recorded in the book of Revelation. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, 
Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. That's found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 7. This event will be the ultimate and final fulfillment of what Jesus is referring to on the Mount of Olives when He says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. God will miraculously assure that the entire world has heard the eternal gospel prior to the end of the age and His judgment being poured out on the earth. Everyone, despite their lack of knowledge of theology, will be presented with the essentials in what is known as the eternal gospel. The gospel has been defined in different ways throughout history. Dispensationalists say that God has changed His plan several times over the years as how man can be reconciled to Him. They say that God has one plan for salvation for Adam, like don't eat from the forbidden tree, another for the generations that followed him, just do the right thing, Cain, another for the Jews who followed after Moses, followed the law, etc. However, through all times, all of these dispensations, or chapters in time, fall under one plan, the plan that he has always had, which has been boiled down greatly and is referred to in the book of Revelation as the eternal gospel. The gospel which has always been, regardless of how theologians have diced it up. Fear God and give Him glory and worship Him who made heaven and earth. Jesus is the first name of the only one true God that exists in the universe. Jesus, the King of the kingdom of heaven, is the God that is to be given glory, to be worshipped, and to be feared. It's only through the sacrifice that God the Son made on the cross that reconciliation with the God of the eternal gospel was made possible. The word eternal, as used in Revelation 14.6, means perpetual and ongoing. It means always has been and always will be. The eternal gospel written of in the book of Revelation is not a special gospel that will only apply to those in the future. Rather, it's a gospel that was in existence before, during, and after the first advent of the Messiah. It's a gospel that's not in conflict with anything that Moses, the prophets, Jesus, or the apostles ever said. The eternal gospel per Revelation chapter 14, 7 is to fear or have reverence for the creator of the universe and worship him. Literally, this form of worship can be compared when a faithful dog is licking the hand of its master. It means to have humble and complete adoration and submission for the Creator. This is part of the simple gospel that was taught by Jesus, Moses, and Paul. Jesus summed up the essence of all of the Old Testament law for us when he answered one of his disciples' questions. That question and answer is found in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. There it says, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The mystery, or Paul's gospel, did nothing more than to say this gospel was meant for all the nations, and not only the Jews. That was the same announcement Jesus made when he said that the gospel of the kingdom 
which was once only to be taken to the Jews, will now be taken to the entire world. Paul said, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. That's found in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. Scripture is clear that it is only through Jesus that humans can be reconciled to God. It is His blood sacrifice that made reconciliation with God and eternal life with Him possible. Based on the sequence of events found in Scripture, I believe that the eternal gospel of Revelation is proclaimed in conjunction with the return of Jesus. There'll be phenomenal, catastrophic, supernatural, worldwide, and unmistakable events that take place with the sign of the Son of Man occurring in the heavens. Jesus shows up, and the eternal gospel will be proclaimed. Jesus is the eternal gospel. The eternal gospel will be proclaimed by the angel, like a caption on television, on behalf of the one who just showed up to the planet. Any details that the Apostle John may have omitted from the eternal gospel that he witnessed in his vision will be filled in by the presence of the one whom the gospel is about, Jesus. It'll be clear The one who shows up with power and authority in the sky, Jesus, is the God who is to be feared and worshipped. Revelation chapter 1 verses 7 to 8 tell us, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and the Omega, The beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. What a way to spread the gospel. Jesus shows up in the air for every eye to see, and an angel declares to fear God and worship Him. During the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is not commanding His disciples to spread the gospel. He is telling them that it will be spread. However, as I pointed out before, just because God miraculously fulfills the prophecy of the gospel being spread to the entire world through the eternal gospel angel, and just because Paul says it has already been accomplished, it does not let the followers of Jesus out of their responsibility to spread the gospel. After his resurrection and prior to ascending to heaven, Jesus told his disciples to participate in this mission. Go to all the world and spread the gospel. Now, After his death, burial, and resurrection, the entire gospel his followers are to spread certainly does include the historical components of Jesus' sacrifice and what it means. In summary, although the gospel was taken to Israel first, Jesus made the announcement that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations and not just Israel. He said that this would occur prior to the end of the age, The gospel of the kingdom of heaven being taken to all the world as opposed to only the nation of Israel is what Paul refers to as the mystery. When the last appointed Gentile or non-Jew has came in, the mystery will be complete and the end of this age will occur. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel that Jesus taught about during his time on earth. Although the gospel of the kingdom would have been thought of differently by his disciples, whom were hearing this prophecy before Jesus died on the cross, it contained all of the same essential components. Ultimately, it's what Jesus did by dying on the cross, 
making atonement for our sins, overcoming death and hell, and rising to eternal life in a glorified body that makes it possible for anyone to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Despite the Great Commission, for the followers of Jesus to spread the gospel to the whole world, the Olivet Discourse's mention of the gospel being preached to all nations was not a command. According to God's will as recorded in the scriptures, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the entire world. Jesus did not say in the Olivet Discourse how that will be accomplished, but only that it will happen. God himself will assure that the eternal gospel is miraculously preached to the entire world prior to the end of the age. We see this idea supported by the Apostle Paul's statement to the church in Colossae and Rome. We also see it occurring in the book of Revelation, when an angel flies through the heavens proclaiming the eternal gospel to all creation just prior to Jesus establishing the kingdom of heaven on this earth. The eternal gospel spoken of in Revelation is the gospel of fearing God, the Creator, and worshiping Him. It's the gospel that has existed since the time of Adam and will exist throughout eternity. In this case, the proclamation of the gospel accompanies the return of Jesus, who is the eternal gospel, like a text that accompanies a picture in the dictionary. The final proclamation of the gospel by a mighty angel will stand like a caption under the scene of the second coming of Jesus. Awesome. That's about all I can say for now before I start weeping. Next time, we'll talk about how history repeats itself and what that has to do with understanding what Jesus says next. Until then, thanks for listening. May God bless and keep you. And Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.